I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. On the afternoon of March 3, 1989, in Valley Stream, New York, a 13-year-old girl watching her younger brother received a phone call. When she hung up, she told her brother that she was going to sneak out to her friends for a little while and would be back soon. But a little while would come and go, and the young girl did not come home as promised. As police and family searched, the young girl's terrible fate was soon discovered and would tear a community apart. This is the Kellyanne Tinya story. Hi, Megan. It's great to see you, Amy. It's always great to see you, too. I know. I miss you when we're not together. I know. <laughs> All right. So I'd like to thank a student researcher who helped me with this case, and she did a, a lot of the heavy lifting on this one. Her name is Amanda Rivera. You know Amanda. She's fabulous. Fabulous. Thank you, Amanda. Great job on this one and on the other episodes you've worked on. Really appreciate it. And before we get to the Kelly Antinia story, we have some supporters we'd like to thank today, Amy. So who do we have? First, we have Hannah Sprague. Rhymes with egg. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Hannah. We also have Jillian McKenna. Now, Jillian McKenna was gifted the Patreon membership from her wife, which is so cool. And they're also from Wexford, Ireland. Get out of here. Yeah. Can we come visit? Oh, <laughs> thank you. What a nice. It's such a compliment to have someone gift your Patreon to yeah, like their wife. It's really cool. Thank you both so much for your support. We really appreciate it. We really do. Thanks to everyone who supports the show financially and otherwise. We appreciate any form of support. We're really grateful. Now let's get to today's case. Kellyanne Tinyas was born on March 5th, 1975 in Valley Stream, New York, where she lived with her mother, Victoria, her father, Richard, 
and her younger brother, Richard Jr. You might remember him from the intro. I said that she was watching him. Mm -hmm. So she had the one sibling. The neighborhood that Kelly lived in was friendly and full of working class families. Actually, my father was from Valley Stream and my grandmother. So this case is somewhat, you know, personal because I know the area. Did you ever hear about the case when you were growing up? I did not hear about this case, no. Um, But my grandmother would not have talked about crime. So (laughs) this was actually also a, a listener's recommendation. So this came from someone else who did know the area and did know the case. Those that lived on her street were very close to one another. They had a very close-knit community, and all around, it was your seemingly safe and normal neighborhood. Kelly was a very athletic 13-year-old girl. She had brown hair, blue eyes, and gained the reputation of being the best babysitter in the neighborhood by other families. According to Kelly's family and friends, she was just a very happy, kind young girl. Okay, so let's talk about the events of March 3rd. On this day, Kelly Ann was babysitting her little brother Richard after school, like she always did. Now, this was just two days before Kelly Ann's 14th birthday, and her parents were planning to throw her a surprise party the next day on March 4th. I saw like someone had said, oh, just like parents always do. I'm like, my parents never gave me a surprise party. Did yours? Never. Okay. I wouldn't want one though. I mean, maybe as a kid, I would have thought it was fun. Maybe. You're such a a bah humbug in that way. The Tinia's home received an incoming call on this day, March 3rd, at around 3.15 p.m. Richard Jr. answered the phone. According to Richard, he remembers answering the phone and John Golub identifying himself as the caller. John is the same age as Kellyanne for reference, and we will talk about his background shortly. Richard recalls the voice on the other end of the phone asking to speak to Kelly. Kellyanne knew that her parents would not allow or approve of her hanging out with John Golub, so she told her little brother that she was going to the house of another friend and would return home soon. Maybe it was just also he was a little bit older. It's mm-hmm. a boy. I don't know what kind of reputation he had, but there were reasons that her parents wouldn't have approved. After Kelly did not return home for a little while, her little brother Richard decided to go look for her. Since she told him that she was going to a friend's house, he went there first. But to his surprise, he was told that Kellyanne actually never showed up there. Another kid in the neighborhood told Richard that he had seen Kellyanne go into the Golub family home. So Richard Jr. proceeded to call the Golubs and knocked on their door countless times, which they never answered. I have to say, for a younger brother, like a, you know, a younger kid, this is kind of pretty impressive. Yep. Very. And he didn't call the parents because he was just like trying to protect his sister. Yeah, he didn't call the parents. Exactly. So not only is it impressive, but it's actually really sweet. Kellyanne's parents got to their family home somewhere between 5 and 6 p.m., you know, the normal time people are getting off work. When they could not find Kelly, they began to call her friends to see if anyone knew where she was. They also drove to their homes to try and get more information. Her little brother Richard went to places that Kellyanne would normally be, such as the malls and the food stores. However, they still couldn't find her. Since she couldn't be found, the family reported her missing to the police at around midnight that night. Mm. And I mean, that makes perfect sense. You know, you come home, she's not there. You think maybe she went out, she's late. By midnight, you start to panic when your child is not home, Mm -hmm. and especially an otherwise responsible child. Supposedly, Kellyanne had told a friend that she was going to run away, which caused some people to think that maybe she genuinely did. You know, this is also a thing that kids say, and this comes up a lot when teenagers go missing. Oh, they must be a runaway. It's just not a smart assumption at all Mm -hmm. to make when there is a child that goes missing. Police arrived at Horton Road the next morning to ask neighbors what they saw. This was the road they lived on. They waited till the next morning? Yeah, I was surprised about that too. But by next morning, I'm not sure what time. It could be because it was midnight. So it could have actually been Been like one or two, who knows. Early, but also they were going to canvas and talk to neighbors. I mean, I would have just banged on the doors, but they might have decided to wait till, you know, sunrise to do so. 
13, though. That's young for it, someone to be missing. But okay. It's young. Remember, these are also different times. Oh, like, yeah. It's a little bit the different. 80s. Yeah, a little bit different in the 80s than it would have been now. The response would have been much swifter now, yep. mm-hmm. um, especially the advent of like Megan's Law yep. and you know, Amber Alerts and whatnot. So what happened? Mrs. Golub that day was seen going around the neighborhood with her son, John, asking surrounding neighbors, you know, what they saw on the day of Kellyanne's disappearance. She also woke up her son, Richard Golub, asking what happened. Richard said, oh, I don't know. He he basically said he didn't know anything. It's a little suspicious, although I'm sure everyone's talking about this in a small, You mean she's community. like overly involved, it seemed like? It seemed like that a little bit. Uh, her behavior seems suspicious to others. Some people said she was acting nervous, hmm. um, you know, just seemingly off. So let's talk a little bit about the Golub family because I've mentioned them and their involvement here. So let's give you some background. The Golub family moved to Horton Road in 1967. They consisted of husband and wife. So this was Elizabeth Golub, who I've just mentioned, and her husband, John Golub Sr., along with their three children. The youngest was a female, Adele, but the two older children, Richard, was 21 years old and John was 14. Mm -hmm. John knew Kellyanne, obviously, because they're, you know, pretty much the same age. They go to school together. They're in the same kind of peer group. According to the others in the neighborhood, the Golub family mainly kept to themselves, and they did consider them to be odd and quirky in some ways. They said that Elizabeth Golub was very much known for being disheveled, wearing the same clothes. They were quieter. So... They didn't exactly fit with the the mold of the neighborhood, although there was nothing outstanding, nothing really mm-hmm. outwardly, you know, wrong here. While Mrs. Golub was questioning her neighbors, police ran into her. They asked if they could check her home. I guess they had heard the same thing uh, from someone else that, who said, no, we saw Kellyanne go into the Golub home. She didn't give them an answer, though, right away. Instead, she called her husband and told him the situation. And he said, do not allow the officers inside the home until he came back from work. I don't know that I think that's completely unreasonable. You know, officers asked to search your home. That's definitely nerve wracking. Why? What are they going to find? You would probably, I'm imagining if officers asked to search your home, you'd probably call Alan before you did something, no? Being in the field we're in, I would know better. But assuming I didn't have any knowledge, maybe I would, yes. Okay. Um, I was just thinking about that because, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously people said that was weird. But I'm like, geez, if that had happened to me, I would definitely have called, you know, my partner first. Like, yeah, we want to search our house. Yeah, like, did you do anything? (laughs) (laughs) Should I hide the drugs? Yeah, no, seriously. Are we going to find, are they going to find anything? Okay. (laughs) Um, Upon his arrival, Mr. Golub walked the officers through the home. They eventually got to the basement where I think they were all shocked to discover the body of 13-year-old Kelly Antinius. Oh, geez. Right? I don't think the parents expected it either, um, although we will talk about that. Um, They didn't see her. Let me just set the scene here, though. They didn't see her right away because when they were in the basement, they said that it was very much filled with trash and clutter, which made the search very difficult. After making their way through this clutter, they opened the door of a closet that was under the staircase. Mm -hmm. And this is where they found a sleeping bag with a, a foot coming out of it. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Inside the bag was obviously Kellyanne. And her body was found naked, beaten, and mutilated. Oh, my God. Yeah, this was surprising. Now, warning, I've said that, but this description is a bit brutal. Kellyanne had been sexually mutilated. Her chest and neck had been slashed. Her torso cut open. Large clumps of her hair had been ripped from her scalp. A horrific cut that went from her vagina to her anus. Ouch. Oh, I mean, and also upon further examination, there were bite marks found on her buttocks. This is very brutal. Um, wow. We're looking at a, a, a brutal, a yeah. heinous crime here. 
Police also discovered a 19-inch long bayonet in the sleeping bag that Kellyanne was found in. If you don't know, a bayonet is a knife or a blade that is meant to be fixed to the muzzle of a rifle, mm. basically turning it into a spear. But this was just the, the blade that was found. I was just giving you a point of reference, not mm. a rifle or any yeah. other type of firearm. But this is intense. I mean, this is a serious weapon that they're finding here. So we have four potential suspects here. And I think that's a good point. We do have four potential suspects. As if the mutilation and the beating wasn't enough, Kellyanne was also strangled, um, and there was a bloody hamperet found on her body. Due to the significant amount of blood spatter that was present, it seemed evident that this crime was personal and that the attacker was filled with rage. I'm not sure that I would say necessarily personal, but I would mm -hmm. say the attacker filled with yeah. rage. You can tell that based on the injuries. Police officers felt that whoever committed the crime must have had a grudge against Kellyanne in some way and had it out for her, although they could not figure out why. I'm not sure. Again, I don't know that I agree with that assessment. I, it does seem personal. Rage-filled attacks usually do seem personal. You might say that he knew her, but it might not be that he had a grudge against necessarily her, but a grudge against someone and took it out on her. I think, though, these conclusions would also be kind of more likely or given based on where the body was found. I mean, they found the body in yeah. a neighbor's house. All of them knew her. So they're saying it's personal. Well, yeah, they all knew her. So I think it that's kind be, of, yeah. it's a, you know, it's just kind of a likely assessment on the outset, which we can talk about. But I guess personal can mean that someone might have had an issue with her, right? Yeah, it, mm -hmm. can, it, it could definitely be. But, you know, they said, oh, it's obvious that her attacker knew her. Well, if her body was found in the house of these four people, it's, yes, her attacker knew her because they all knew her. So... I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but let's move on. Now that, now that they found Kellyanne's body, um, let's talk about the investigation. The autopsy report concluded that there were no defensive wounds anywhere on Kellyanne's body, meaning that, you know, defensive wounds, we talk about this all the time, but this means that she may not have fought back or there was no evidence if she did. We could maybe hope that she was put out of her misery quickly. Yeah, this also might be something that you talk about recently, uh, you know, the idea of a blitz attacker being yep. attacked from behind. Mm -hmm. It could also be that there was more than one attacker, <sighs> so they could overpower mm -hmm. her quickly, mm -hmm. um, or like uh, a surprise attack. There are a lot of reasons why people don't fight back. Mm -hmm. So it's not, uh, you know, you don't see defensive wounds in every case. That's yeah. kind of, a, uh, I think, a, a misconception mm -hmm. that everyone's going to show these wounds. Yeah. Police discovered that on the day Kelly received the phone call from the Golub household, there were four people inside. It wasn't his parents, though, because we talked about the four possible suspects. Mm -hmm. We had the brothers, Robert and John Golub, who we've already introduced, and two of John's friends were there. John's the younger brother, correct? That's correct. Okay. So this is also taking a little bit of a different turn now. Mm -hmm. The Golub family, in the meantime, immediately began to kind of get a story together, whether you believe it or not, about what everyone was doing. It seemed like very quickly they were accounting for all of their actions over the time and over that time period. What are they period. trying to claim that somebody planted the body there? It, it's kind of going in that d d direction, to be honest. They're kind of like, well, there were other people who had access to the home. So John Golub and whoever made the phone call to Kelly Ann claimed that they had been playing video games and that nobody else had entered the home. So they were playing video games the entire time or most of the time. But they also claimed that they had gone out to play basketball that same day seemed like they were filling the day. Both John and Robert denied making that phone call to Kellyanne's house. But remember, Kellyanne's younger brother remembers the person on the other end saying his name was John Golub. Mm -hmm. And as you probably know, and unfortunately for the Golub boys, police are able to confirm yeah. phone records here. 
Um, I don't know why they wouldn't assume that, but they're young and maybe it wasn't common then. But Were they able to do that in the 80s? Yeah, they were okay. actually. So the police were able to confirm that mm-hmm. there was a phone call placed from the Gallup home to Kellyanne's house mm-hmm. on that afternoon, just as her younger brother, Richard, Building a nice, said. strong case here. They really, I mean, you have a, a body, a phone call. I mean, parents that aren't home. It was reported that after Kellyanne's body was discovered, John Golub went to the house of the friend that was over that day to talk. This is the younger brother. And witnesses report that once John made the discovery that his friend had already been taken in for questioning, he yelled at him, tell them we were just playing Nintendo. This doesn't look good either. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, yes, this doesn't look good. But it also might be a frustrated, like he's afraid that like, they're going to try to pin something on him and just tell him we were playing Nintendo. So you could interpret this two ways. The two Gala boys and the two friends were taken in for questioning and given lie detector tests. Guess what the outcome was? They did not pass the lie detector tests. I tricked you. They all passed they the tests. They all passed. That doesn't mean shit. Why doesn't that mean anything, Amy? Because lie detector tests are not reliable. I think we see it case in case over and over again, people who pass tests who were lying and people who fail tests who were telling the truth. Yep. It's undeniably why lie detector tests are not admissible in court and they're not reliable. And I'm assuming the police don't care. They have enough other evidence to know that these boys know something. They just wanted to be able to maybe use that as more of like a jumping off point. I think they wanted to use that as a jumping off point. I would also say they probably wanted to figure out the other boys, like mm-hmm. not the Golub boys, but the two others that were in the home. Yeah. Were they involved or and were they And also gone? intimidation and... Yeah, sure. Yeah. It serves a number of different purposes, even um, if the lie detector is not admissible in court. But you're right. They had other evidence, much stronger evidence. And while the police were searching the Golub home, they discovered... A suitcase in the basement that contained the clothes that Kellyanne was wearing the day of her disappearance. A large t-shirt was also found. It was soaked in blood and semen. And the police believed that it belonged to Robert Golub, the older brother. However, this is odd. The police determined that the semen was not tied to the murder and that it could have been thrown into the suitcase beforehand. Why? How? I'm uh, not sure okay. how they made this determination. Okay. Uh, I think it's really bizarre. And due to the, but due to their, their determination... Um, the T-shirt wasn't used as evidence during the investigation. I, I think there there's certainly ways to determine um, whether like how, how long it was. Yes, yeah, of yes, course. If if it's older, but there was also blood on the shirt, so it's unclear as to why. If I it, guess by if it it's being, his own blood, if it was old, why would there be a blooded semen T-shirt? But can't they tell by doing DNA whose blood it is? I would imagine they did run the test, and it's probably his blood. So if it's oh, his blood and it's gotcha. his semen, That's you know what why, I mean? Yeah. Then there's mm-hmm. they can't necessarily use. I that. just assumed it was her blood. No, and if it wasn't found with her body, then gotcha. they, they might look at this as, you know, you could use it, but perhaps they also yeah. felt they had stronger evidence. I was going to say, that it seems like they probably have enough otherwise. Yeah. So now let's talk about the stories. Here's the stories from the Golub family. Um, so they are as follows. Mr. Golub, the father, told police that he had picked up John from playing basketball after he got off of work from the gas station that he owned and that he arrived at the house at 5 p.m. So remember, John had said that he was out playing basketball mm-hmm. with his friends. They played Nintendo and went to play basketball. Okay. Mrs. Golub arrived home shortly after her husband, and she also claimed that um, she had not seen Kellyanne inside the home that day and had no knowledge of her coming there. Mrs. Golub made police and neighbors suspicious, though, because she was acting very nervous as if she had something to hide. And again, mm-hmm. we know better than to judge people by their demeanor. Um, this is a nerve-wracking situation find out a girl's missing and she may have been in your house. I mean, I'm sure that even if she wasn't hiding something, her anxiety was high at the time. 
it was discovered that Mr. Golub's statement that he picked up John after work did not coincide with Richard Jr., uh, Kellyanne's brother, his statement that John Golub had called the home telling Kellyanne to come over at 345. I mean, it's also possible that somebody called claiming to be John. Absolutely. Brother, friend, mm-hmm. someone else yeah. in the home. Very good point. What's coming together here, I can tell you, is that the police are really honing in not on John Golub, but on Robert Golub. He was the older brother, 21 years old, and he was considered the primary suspect, really from the beginning of the investigation. And after about a month, the police arrested 21-year-old Robert Golub. Did he have a history of any? No, he didn't have a history. When the news of his arrest was discovered by the neighborhood, people were shocked, to say the least. Again, Robert was shy. He kept to himself. He had no criminal record. Robert was, one of the things they describe about his physical appearance is that he was very short for a, for a male, standing at just five foot three inches, but he was very strong. He was a dedicated bodybuilder. It was reported that Robert would spend up to three hours a day at the gym and could bench press 310 pounds. That seems like an astronomical amount to me. I'm, yes, I'm not, I'm, I think so too. Do you I know don't, what, yeah, I was going to ask, do you know what Alan bench presses? Probably I would ask, not that. I don't know. I wouldn't think so either. I don't know what James does, but that seems like a, a, some serious weight. It was also made known that Robert took illegal steroids, which can have side effects such as mood swings and uh, aggressive behavior. Mm -hmm. The night that Kellyanne's body was discovered, the police questioned Robert for 18 hours. Long time. During those 18 hours, and I I don't know if, you know, I'm sure he got breaks, Mm -hmm. but I don't know to what extent. But during those 18 hours, Robert began to share personal things about himself with the police. One of those things being that he belonged to the NRA or the National Rifle Association. This piece of information stuck out specifically because of that bayonet that was found near Mm -hmm. Kellyanne's body. Robert also admitted to the police that he once shot the neighbor's dog in the face with a BB gun because it wouldn't stop barking and it was keeping him awake. Oh, okay. This is uh, a serious red flag. We, um, not taken in itself, one incidence, but violence against animals. Red flag. It's a red red flag, flag for sure. Another piece of information that Robert shared with the police was that he looked up to his younger brother, John. Um, This is odd. John's 14. Robert's 21. Robert was shy and quiet and didn't have many friends, while John was the complete opposite. He was outgoing and extroverted, had plenty of friends, those friends that came over. He was popular. Um, So this is definitely another red flag for the police. Robert Golub claimed that he didn't know Kellyanne, but knew that her and John were seeing each other. So this is bizarre. He's saying, yeah, my brother's seeing her, but I didn't know her. Pr- mm-hmm. Trying to distance himself a little bit. Is he trying to blame his brother? No, I don't okay. think so. I think he's just saying, yeah, my brother dated her, but I didn't really know gotcha. her. Gotcha. Uh, the relationship status between Kellyanne and John, just so you know, was not confirmed. Robert said they knew because the two called each other quite often and the way that they looked at each other and it seemed obvious that they were more than friends. Mm-hmm. Kellyanne's parents denied this and said that Kelly had no connection to John Golub, but it seemed that, you know, and, and not uncommonly mm-hmm. young girls hide this from their parents when they have relationships, especially when their parents were not in favor yeah. of that. Yeah. Um, so that's not entirely shocking. After the murder, police discovered that Robert had small cuts on his right hand and they asked him how he got them, of course. And at first, he explained that he got them from weightlifting because, you know, you usually (laughs) cut your hands when you're lifting weights. This made no sense. And then later, he changed that story and said that he may have gotten them while working with sheet metal. He discredited his story by then, saying that he never worked with sheet metal before. He went back and forth. He was Mm -hmm. contradicting himself. 
he's nervous, I think. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's got cuts, which does not look good for him when mm -mm. someone's been stabbed. When the police asked Robert where he was on the afternoon of March 3rd, he told them that he had left the house just once to go purchase a muscle magazine. Okay. <laughs> That's his alibi. Any receipts or surveillance, anything? No, no receipts, no surveillance. He may have had a muscle magazine, but I think he may have had many muscle magazines. <laughs> Jeez. When he returned home, he claims to have watched television until about 3 p.m. That's what he said. Robert told police that his little brother John had skipped school and that they had friends over and that the young boys had been basically hanging out and smoking weed together, not uncommon for 14-year-olds mm -hmm. skipping school. Robert's claims, though, conflicted with his father's claim that he had picked up John from playing basketball. So we have some conflicting stories here, and I'm going to sum this all up in a little bit, just so you know. Robert also claimed that he was asleep at the time it was said that Kelly Kellyanne arrived at the Golub household. John woke up Robert around 6.30 p.m. to tell him that a girl was calling the house asking for him, and Robert said that he didn't answer the call. This is later on, and I'm not really sure how this um, actually, I don't really know how this interacts with Kellyanne. Mm -hmm. But Robert says that he ate dinner, then went out with a friend to smoke and didn't return home until about 11.30 p.m. Mm -hmm. I guess that's what he's saying. He was home earlier, went out later. Yeah. All members of the Golub family basically had an alibi claiming that they didn't see or have any interaction with Kellyanne on the day of her disappearance. However, remember, we have the phone call and we also have that neighbor who was crystal mm -hmm. clear and positive that she saw Kellyanne knock on the door to the Golub mm -hmm. home. That neighbor, however, said that John answered the door and let her in. Right. So to recap everyone's stories, just so you know, Richard Tinius, that's Kellyanne's little brother, claimed that John called the house to have Kellyanne come over around 3.15 p.m. Robert Golub said that he was sleeping at the time that Kellyanne arrived. Mr. Golub says that he was picking up John or that he picked up John from basketball around 5 p.m., which would have been after Kellyanne arrived. Mrs. Golub said that she arrived shortly after her Husband got home around 5 p.m. and didn't see Kellyanne. And John Golub claimed that him and his friends were playing video games and never noticed Kellyanne in the house. I mean, who's lying here? You know, are they all lying? Is it, is it just, I'll ask you your opinion later mm -hmm. on, but keep that all in mind. After the crime, John Golub was sent away to boarding school. Very odd. Never had. This was after the brother was arrested? Yes. He was never considered a suspect in the investigation and never really showed any interest or involvement in it. But this was interesting because many people believe that John definitely played a role in what happened to Kellyanne. Unfortunately, the police just didn't have any evidence to show that he did. It's suspicious that they sent him to boarding school though very quickly after. But if he didn't do anything, he clearly is going to be a little messed up from what happened and his brother's was arrested for the murder of his friend. Like, maybe they just wanted him to... Why not move then? Yeah, I don't know. Well, Boarding school's almost more of a punishment, right? Yeah. In a way to get someone out of sight, out yeah. of mind. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm thinking they're... they're, they're I'm thinking that sounds like they're hiding him, to yeah. be honest. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, they just couldn't prove anything. The only thing that they were certain of was that John... They were certain that John Golub called Kellyanne that day and that he had a closer relationship to her than Robert did. I'm not sure how they're certain that John called her Maybe they knew, though, that she wouldn't have come over if Robert called. Yeah. Like, she would only come mm -hmm. over for someone she knew. Yeah. So it would be odd that Robert would call because, they, yeah. you know. The neighbors were suspicious because they felt that if John was home that day, then he should have definitely heard Kellyanne screaming or any commotion. You know, John claimed that he and his friends wouldn't have heard it because they were playing loud music. They were smoking weed. They were playing games. Everyone was suspicious, basically, of the entire mm -hmm. family. After Robert Golub was arrested and asked if he killed Kellyanne, he replied with no comment. But that wouldn't be the last word on this because soon after there would be a trial. 
It was said that during the trial, Robert did not look up at all, only once when the jury was selected. During breaks, this is where things get crazy, members of the Tinius and Golub families screamed and tore at one another in the hallways and the bathrooms of the courthouse. These two were bitterly divided, and that usually happens with victims, but how outspoken they were with each other and the level in the courthouse was particularly venomous. As Randy Kreese mentioned in the Long Island Herald, I attended every day of the trial reporting for our newspapers and will never forget the faces of Victoria and Richard Tinez as they heard testimony and saw jurors react to crime scene photos, photos of the savage attack on their daughter. The bloody handprint that was found on Kellyanne's body was tested twice. The first time it was concluded that it did not belong to Robert or anyone else in the home. The second time it was tested by the FBI and concluded that it belonged to Robert Golub. Another significant piece of evidence at the trial was the bite mark that was found on Kellyanne's buttocks. The police had taken samples of Robert Golub's teeth marks and said they were a perfect match to the bite mark. That's junk science. I was going to say that. Unfortunately, that doesn't do it for me. Um, We know from the Bundy trial and we know from everything we know that... uh, West Memphis 3. uh, Yeah, we know that uh, bite mark analysis, we consider it largely Mm -hmm. to be junk science. The blood spatter analysts that were present during the trial claimed that the blood that was found at the scene couldn't belong to anyone but Robert Golub, and so the physical evidence was pretty strong. How can you... I don't understand that. They probably eliminated the other family members by blood type, type or, or... Okay. There's other ways to eliminate, yeah. but they, okay. they were able to. Robert didn't take the stand in his defense, which should come as no surprise. Mm-hmm. I mean, for anyone who's a new listener... Lawyers don't usually advise their clients to take the stand. There's just too many opportunities to destroy their credibility. And just to add to that, I don't think in, you can evaluate a person's innocence or guilt based on their willingness to take the stand. No, That's but juries fair. unfortunately do. On, yep, they absolutely. do, unfortunately. After almost two months of trial, in April of 1990, the jury found Robert Golub guilty of second-degree murder, which carried a sentence of 25 years to life in prison. I've read from different sources. It was interesting that he was sentenced to first-degree murder, but I saw second-degree murder more predominantly, so I wonder if that was a mistake. Um, Although Robert was convicted, Kellyanne's parents, along with others, believe that the family was involved in the murder, and they don't think everyone was brought to justice, and they continue to fight for her to this day. According to one source, when the verdict was read, Robert Golub was expressionless. He then looked once at the jury as the verdict was read, then back at the judge, and then once more at the jury as it was polled. Then he stood up, put his arms behind him, waiting for the handcuffs to be placed on him. He looked briefly, still without expression, at his parents and was quietly led away to prison. Both families would remain in their homes on the same street. What? Yes. And and they continued to fight, tearing this community apart for several years. People described it as a war zone. Neither one of them would move. And I actually read an account that the Tinyases tried to buy the Golub household and Gal- the Golubs would not sell it for, and they said for no amount of money would they leave. Wow. Yeah, this became a real battle of the wills here. In the late 1990s, John Golub was arrested on drug charges in Nassau County. Sources have also said that three employees of a New Jersey Hooters sued Golub, who had been the manager there, for sexual discrimination after he promised them better work shifts in exchange for sexual favors. <laughs> Hooters' corporate offices in Atlanta could not confirm the allegations. Though. Okay. All right. So let's get to what the aftermath. Where is Robert now? Well, I was going to ask. 25 to life, he could potentially be out. So please tell me he's not out. He's not. He's okay. in his early 50s serving his sentence still. 
But in 2015, he actually told the parole board for the first time that he did kill Kelly Antinias, but it was an accident and he was sorry. Wait till you hear this. This is his story. Kelly ran into the house and he collided with her, which caused her to fall backwards down the stairs. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh, I'm still going. He said that she was unconscious and he began to suffocate her, but he didn't mean to suffocate her. He just kind of panicked. Mm -hmm. After suffocating her, he said that he dragged her by the ankles and pulled her all through the house, to which her jacket and shirt rode up. Oh, jeez. Yep. Sorry, this is... I know. He said that he then slapped her to try to get her to regain consciousness. And when those slaps didn't work, they turned into punches and kicks. In the end, Richard tried to blame his behavior on heavy steroid use. What about the sexual assault? He gave no explanation for the sexual mutilation that was done to Kellyanne, making his story all the more unbelievable. And unsurprisingly, his request for parole was denied. (sighs) He was up again for parole in 2017, although he was denied that time due to the heinousness of the crime. An interview with Kellyanne's parents, along with a retired private investigator who interviewed Golub in prison, said that he had some interesting information. This was mentioned in New York CBS Local, and this is a direct quote. He basically said that he had to show remorse. If he didn't show remorse, he'd never get out. The murders even puzzled Golub's trial attorney, Salvatore Marinello, who said that there are a lot of unanswered questions in this case, and only Robert Golub has the answers. Kellyanne's parents have created a petition that many have signed to never release Golub from prison. Um, His parents eventually moved to Florida sometime after 2009. Okay, so this brings us to our opinions. I want to talk briefly about theory and then just ask your opinion on the criminal Mm -hmm. justice response. I have two different possibilities here. I actually think that this was a sexually motivated crime by a very frustrated, awkward, outcast, angry man who was um, not experienced with women and just not able to uh, establish normal sexual relationships. I think that he probably felt inadequate for a lot of these reasons. And if I had to, I'd probably categorize him as a power assertive rapist. Um, They use rape as a way to validate their own masculinity, um, which I think was at question for him. But he might also be categorized, just so you know, as an anger rapist. And anger rapists use rape as a way to degrade and humiliate their Well, they're not mutually exclusive. They're not always mutually exclusive. I mean, there are usually these typologies, and people usually sway more into one category. But you're right. Certainly, he could be both. I don't think, I'm not sure, but I don't know that murder was the primary motive. But I think the anger took a hold and that escalated, especially when I'm sure she Even if she didn't fight back, I'm sure she wasn't a willing participant here. However, I just want to point out that it's possible that um, he might also be what we call a lust murderer. And that's actually uh, relates a lot when I teach serial killers. Lust murderers are, for them, sexual torture becomes a way to degrade and humiliate their victim and achieve sexual arousal. And one of the reasons I bring this up is because mutilation, postmortem mutilation is pretty common in this type of murder. The reason I can't say for sure, though, um, about this is because he only had the one crime. And, you know, this is usually something we establish when there's multiple victims. Um, So I'm not able to say based on one crime and no criminal history whether or not he would. Mm -hmm. But I think he could fit in both of these categories. Um, And remember, just because he had no criminal history doesn't mean he had no criminal past. There's a difference, right? Very good point, Amy. Thank you. Yes, nothing on record, but Mm -hmm. certainly could have had some type of past. Because I thought of that, too. Usually it escalates. But it does. We and don't know. The reason I said lust murderer too is because because in the serial world, one of the red flags, as we established early, is harming animals. Mm-hmm. Now, usually not standing on its own, but we don't know about his entire past. Yep. 
any criminologically any theories that come to mind or um, you think I've covered it there I'm thinking social bond could play a role here it sounds like he didn't have much of an attachment to pro-social organizations and activities and individuals yeah. kind of a loner it seems yeah maybe throw social control in there he's impulsive perhaps low low self-control yeah certainly well well that could also be influenced by the steroid use too well also the steroid use and there could be a biochemical explanation yeah that's that's certainly possible but i i think i also think that's kind of um almost taking blame away by saying it's something that you know there's a, something that he's in you know his steroids were his biological makeup and the steroids influence him and i think that's not fair to the victim because it's almost letting him off too easy well and and when we te- when i teach serial killers we look at um drugs and alcohol not as the explanation but we call them facilitators yeah. so they mm-hmm. facilitate the actions something else i was thinking was this a crime of opportunity or was it premeditated so i'm wondering if john invited her over because they were friends and then robert it was a crime of opportunity maybe robert was alone with her for a minute and he tried to make a pass at her who knows or was it premeditated where he actually lured her over or perhaps had his brother lure her over for the purpose of him to harm her. Yeah, I think that's why um, the sentence was, uh, or the conviction was for second degree murder, because I think it was really hard to establish whether or not this was premeditated. Yep. And I don't know either way either. I really, I thought about it hard and I'm just not sure. If and I wonder if, it doesn't sound like it, but I wonder if there's any evidence of him having an interest in her or any stalking behavior leading up to this. Nothing that I could find, to be honest. But again, doesn't mean it didn't exist. Yep. So those are all interesting points. Thanks for the insight, and Amy. sorry, one more thing. Yeah. You never know what's going on in an offender's life. So strain theory can always be an explanation. But I we don't just like don't... it for this one as much, to be honest. No, this I don't think, I, I don't think. definitely do not think it's like a primary one, but I do think it's impossible to know what's going on at any given time. I like, mean, it always, you're right. It, it's a stress and a frustration. We talk about strain theory and obviously he was a frustrated, stressed guy, yeah. right? So now that we've kind of, we've done our best to explain his behavior, let's look at the criminal justice system response. 25 years to life, he's been denied parole because he's lied mm-hmm. and because of the heinous nature of the crime. This sentence seems appropriate to me. Um, He was 21 years old at the time. So I just wonder if you have a different opinion on that, Amy. No, I love the fact that he has been denied parole. I think he should continue to be denied parole until I I don't I don't know if life. It's hard to say. He definitely should not be out any time in the near future. No, he's in his 50s now. So he's aging out of crime. But I would say that Parole could only be a possibility if he was willing to acknowledge the truth of his crime. Mm-hmm. and if Maybe he... give the family some closure by really telling. I think when we look at who should be, after a violent crime, who should be granted the opportunity to have a life again, I think it's only individuals who are going to own up to everything and provide all the answers to a victim's family. Like, I want to know, did you lure her over? I want to know, did John have anything to do with it? Did your parents hide evidence? I want to know it all. Throw everyone under the bus to just come clean. I couldn't have said that any better myself. I mean, my sincere hope is that he actually will tell the truth someday and give the family just the closure and the answers that they really have just wanted for so many Mm -hmm. years. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Megan, for that important case. No problem. And thank you, everyone, for listening to Women in Crime. We'll see you next time. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show while gaining access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Thank you.
Sources for today's episode include the Long Island Herald, Newsday, CBS Local News, the Long Island Press, YouTube, and ChillingCrimes.com. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.